Welcome to this week's uh, Think Jewish. And the title of this week's class is The Locked Garden, Having Pleasure with God. Okay? There's going to be a couple of introductions to this uh, class, this lecture. And just that you should know, when I was growing up, we always learned that the introductions is actually bigger than the actual concept itself. The processing is more in the introductions. Uh, simply speaking, you prepare for the wedding night uh, for how long? And then it's over in a couple of hours, right? Life is that way. You prepare for Pesach for a month and seven days later. So uh, that's just the way it works. And actually, before I, before I actually get started here, let me just also ask everyone to please um, go ahead and put their phones off, okay? Okay, so there's a couple of introductions here. One introduction is just a little bit of nice information. This past Tuesday, right? Yesterday. Tuesday was the birthday. It was the, thir it was the second day of the calendar, of the Jewish calendar month of Iyar, which is the birthday of the Rebbe Maharash, Rabbi Shmuel of Lubavitch, which was the fourth Rebbe in the dynasty of Chabad Lubavitch. Okay? Now, the Rebbe Maharash, one of his huge impacts and changes in the process of teaching Hasidus is something called Hemshechem. What does Hemshechem mean? A Hemshech means a series. Prior to Rabbi Shmuel of Lubavitch, prior to the Rebbe Marash, every single Friday night or somewhat Shabbos, every single holiday, the Rebbe of that generation deli delivered a mimer, a Hasidic discourse. Each mimer was self-contained. There was a mimer, it asked a question, it discussed the topic, it was answered. The Rebbe Marash started a series. He started that he would start a topic on one Shabbat or one holiday, and this would continue just to develop and develop and develop on the same topic. And therefore it's called a series. It wasn't just more isolated each week or each holiday. It was a topic which kept on being fully developed. And they went for a year, and then uh, his son later took it to the next level. He has one Hemshech, a famous one, that went five and a half years. Another one went two and a half years. So that was a change of the Rebbe Marash. And what that did for us is that all of a sudden you're able to watch the mystical development of a concept. It wasn't just one teaching here and go find when he spoke about it again somewhere in the indexes of uh, his teachings. It was a continuous development of a concept. This specific mimer that we're discussing tonight of the Rebbe was based upon the famous series of the fourth Lubavitch Rebbe of Shmuel called Matzah Zu, this Matzah, and it began on Passover of 1860, and it just kept on developing. We're going to be talking about and we're going to watch this amazing process of the development of an interesting verse in the book of Songs, Shira Shirim by King David. And the verse is, A locked up garden is my sister, bride, a locked up spring, a sealed fountain. So we're going to watch the Rebbe Marash dealing with this beautiful process of this verse. Okay? Introduction number one, the, uh, the, the Hemsha, the series. Number two, the groom and bride. Let's talk about the groom and bride. In the mystical teachings, you'll always find that the groom and the bride are on different levels, and the groom is the giver, 
the bride is the receiver. The bride needs to be prepared and empowered to connect with the groom. Where does that come from? By the way, ultimately speaking, which is what we'll find in a lot of teachings, ultimately speaking, you're going to find that the bride then later becomes the giver. And the bride connects the groom to a source and a capacity which it does not have on its own. But where does this come from? The groom is the giver, the bride is the receiver, and obviously it manifests itself physically, just physically in the relationship of making a child. But where does this come from? It actually comes from two mystical concepts. Number one, the groom and the bride is God and us. Thus we now understand how we, the finite human physical, have to be empowered to be able to have a connection and a marriage with God. Number one. Number two, another interesting mystical concept of the bride, the groom and the bride, you've heard from me previously, and this is concerning the spirot, the emanations, the seven emotion emanations. You have the six male emotions called the small faces, and then you have the seventh emo emotion emanation, which is called kingship, malchut, and that's the feminine mystique. And if you follow the teachings, you'll realize how the feminine mystique, which represents the moon, in the beginning, on its own, it has no light. It needs to reflect the sun, which is the uh, six male emotions. And then again, eventually, it becomes higher, and it is the one that's the giver. So interesting, when we talk about the giver as the groom, the masculine, the receiver as the bride, the feminine, and the feminine has to be actually too empowered to be able to connect to the male, understand where it's coming from, okay? Very interesting. If you follow these mystical teachings, this is a sidebar, a side note. If you follow the mystical teachings that eventually the purpose of this all and the marriage is that the feminine kingship should be able to connect the masculine six small faces to a higher source of essence and the female becomes the giver, by the way, i.e., Till this very day, who circles who under the chuppah? The bride empowers the groom with the seven emotions needed to become one. That is actually a messianic moment under every chuppah. But if you watch what's actually taking place globally, it's amazing how there's the physical manifestation as we prepare for Mashiach, and Mashiach is imminently coming, how we're actually watching that twist where the feminine is no more the receiver, but starting to be the giver and actually connecting men to experiences and heights that they're not capable on their own. So it's very interesting that you should find the mystical teaching actually happening right now. Okay? So we spoke about the groom and the bride. Let's talk about another interesting introduction. You'll see how this all plays in. There's none of these introductions out to waste. Another interesting introduction is I want to dissect for you people the chuppah. I'm sure you've all been by weddings. You've seen the chuppah. There are two separate issues. There is the kierosin, betrawal, and there is the nisuyin, which is the marriage. Presently, they take place on the same time. Presently, under the chuppah, everything is done. I first want to explain the chuppah, and then we're going to talk about how it used to be in the days of old. 
So you come to the chuppah, right? You sit down and the guy sings the Baruch Haban, right? The whole thing is beautiful. And then the rabbi begins the ceremony. He begins the ceremony over a cup of wine and he makes a blessing. What is that blessing? If you listen to the words of the blessing, we are blessing God for sanctifying us with the commandments and the laws of the betrothal, not the marriage. After we make that blessing, we actually do the betrothal. And what is that? The man puts on the woman's finger the ring. And what does he read to her? Hare at li. And let's just get the exact English translation here. With this ring, you are consecrated to, consecrated to me according to the law of Moses and Israel. At that point, we are talking about a betrothal. No marriage has taken place. This is called Aresin. Just that you should understand what this means according to Jewish law. According to Jewish law, I'm not going to get into all the technical other stuff, but the practical stuff. What it means for us is that this woman is hereby betrothed, which means that were she to have an affair, God forbid, at this point, it is punishable by death. For all practical purposes, everything about the marriage is in place other than they did not physically consummate the marriage, which is the reason why she does not have to wear a wig yet. If you have to cover your hair, then why don't you have to wear your wig a second after you leave the chuppah? And the answer is because the marriage was not consummated and therefore she does not have to wear it. There are those, by the way, that will go straight into the room and they will put on the wig. Most, I mean, in Chabad we don't, okay? But mostly, certain families do from different influence, influences. But in Chabad we don't do that. And that's the reason why. Now, after we finish the ring, you'll notice that we make a purposeful separation. We read the Ketubah. It makes zero sense of reading a Ketubah. Why in the world would we be reading a private prenuptial contract in public? Granted, it's standard for Ashkenazim. In Sephardim, by the way, it's not standard. The Sephardic people actually write. There's actually a very interesting case where in one ketubah, he promised her a million dollars. And later by the divorce, there was a big issue. We just keep standard, the rabbinical law. Okay? But that's not the way it really is. You could write anything you want. So that's a private prenup. Why are we reading that in public? You should just know that the only reason we read that in public is because we want to, since today we're doing the betrothal and the marriage together, we want to make a separation. That's the only reason. Then after the ketubah is read, we then go ahead and do the nisuim, the marriage. The marriage is made up of, once again, taking a cup of wine and to make seven blessings, the famous seven blessings over the cup of wine. And then the man has to bring the woman into a room to be alone as the verse states and he will take her from her father's home into his home okay now just to get the record clear there is no consummation taking place in that room but we do have to have two witnesses to be able to testify that they were alone in a room long enough to have consummated if you want to know what really goes on in that room, traditionally the chatan and the kala, the groom and the bride are fasting all day and that's the first time they get to eat. 
By the way, practically speaking, that's what actually goes on in that room. Okay? Another thing that goes on in that room is, according to Jewish law, I want to just use this opportunity to give you knowledge of, of general Judaism, not just mystical concepts. According to Jewish law, you do not give a ring under the chuppah that's anything but plain and simple. Why? It comes from the Talmud. The woman has to know the value of what you're giving her. Now, unless you're a professional gemologist, you will not know when you receive that ring how much this diamond is worth. And therefore, to keep away from any complications, it's a very simple, round ring. By the way, you don't have to give a ring. According to Jewish law, it's all about giving her something that according to Jewish law is the minimal amount of financial value that she can go and buy for herself sustenance. That's what it really is. If you look in the Talmud, it's about kesef, money, not about rings. Ring became because of a Kabbalistic concept. So there's the erosin, which is that financial part. He gives her a ring, which is, for all practical purposes to us, financial value which she can sell and buy food for herself. That becomes the erosin. And then later, there is the nisuyan. There is the marriage part. Okay? Now let's talk about how it used to be once upon a time. Once upon a time, it was not done the same night. Once upon a time, you did the chuppah with the ring. And then he went back to yeshiva and she went back home. He went to study in yeshiva and prepare himself for the marriage, and she went back home for the same reason. Just that you know, in the days of old, there were times that between the betrayal, the erisin, and the nisuyin, the marriage, there were years. There would actually be years. They did it when they were both very young. They went their own ways and got married later. Today, we don't do it. It's just much too complicated with the weak minds of men and women today. So let's just do it. If you decide you want to do it, let's do it one after another, done, over with. But once upon a time, it was separate. Now, just like I told you that after they finished doing the betrayal, they will both go to prepare themselves. Literally, the father, the bride would start beginning with funds, preparing to set up a house. The boy would go back and start preparing himself to learn how to run a house. Spiritually, according to Kabbalah, it's the same thing. Spiritually, according to Kabbalah, the betrayal is what empowers the woman to be able to connect to the man, the bride, groom. Remember where it's coming from, Kabbalah. God, Jewish people, the emanations. In order that there should be eventually the marriage where there is the seed of essence transferred from the husband to the wife. Again, remember a Kabbalistic concept. So we're talking about the type of union between human being and God in which God gives his seed of essence to the Jewish physical human being and that's how they become one. Needless to say, there has to be a preparation for that. According to Kabbalah, the preparation for the marriage union of being able to internalize the seed of essence, what empowers the bride to do that is the process of the betrayal. Okay? <sighs> betrothal. I'm saying it wrong? Betrothal. Thank you. Okay. 
just that you should understand, now going back to the verse that we spoke about, okay? Understand that the locked up garden is the betrothal. Betrothal. <laughs> okay. And the locked up spring is the marriage. If you read the verse, you remember what the verse said? Let's go over again the verse. The verse of the in the book of Songs. A locked up garden is my sister, my bride. A locked up spring, a sealed fountain. The first half of that verse is the erisin, the betrothal. I'm never going to say that word right tonight, right? So let me just even, that's it, I'm using the Hebrew word, erisin. Get used to it, okay? So the first half is the erisin, and the second part is the marriage, which is the nisuyin. In general, you people should familiarize yourself that the book of songs written by King Solomon entirely is all about the love, the erisin, and the marriage between God and the Jewish people. And some of the most beautiful teachings that you have in Chassidus, including an entire section of, of the famous book of the Alter Rebbe, is all on Shira Shirin verses, the book of songs. It really helps us understand the relationship and what, where we're going with our relationship with God. Okay, we have one last introduction, okay? And after that, we'll get to the, the, the class itself, the lecture itself. I want to talk to you about encompassing internalized powers. A paradox if there's ever been one. Let's talk about this, okay? In the relationship between God and creation and how God sustains the world, we talk about two dimensions of the infinite light. We talk about the encompassing light and we talk about the permeating light. That's the way we talk about it. For me personally, you've been here to classes long enough, you've always heard me use the metaphors of the circle and the line. The circle is the infinite encompassing, the line, which is not just a straight line. I always ask you to picture that on the top it's very wide and it's getting smaller and smaller. That's the permeating light, okay? Now, I want to just, let's understand this. The Alter Rebbe, Rebbe Schneer Zalman, founder of Chabad Lubavitch, author of the book of Tanya, he explains to us, he clarifies to us, that the definition of the word encompassing over here is not one to be used as in space. In space, we see that this does not permeate. It only circles around and around, while the other one actually enters and permeates. That's not what we should be looking at. When we talk about divinity, we don't talk about it in that way. What are we talking about? Have you ever heard the word, I can't wrap my head around this? That is how we deal with the encompassing. We can literally say, I can't wrap my head around this. Why? Because encompassing by definition over here actually means to elude. As much as I try and I try, it eludes me. I get it, I get it. There's a vague image starting to happen, but I never really get it. Thus, when we talk about the infinite encompassing light from the finite human perspective it always eludes us we spend our life studying about it to get connected to it and yet nevertheless by very definition because it is encompassing it is infinite and circular to the linear human finite being it always eludes us and thus, we never can wrap our head around it. It is always wrapped around us. 
versus the permeating light. The permeating light, because of its finite expression and its matching characteristics to the human finite infrastructure, we internalize it. And thus, in our relationship with God, we always have both. Let's go back to the very foundation of our relationship with God. What did we say? We will do obedience, encompassing. It eludes us. Vinishma, and we will hear, we will learn, we will understand, we will internalize. Thus, you have both. Okay? However, let us understand that tonight, the Aresin, the betrothal, say it again? Betrothal. <laughs> betrothal is all about the encompassing. That's the locked garden. While on the other hand, when we talk about the Nisuyan, the marriage, we're talking about the internalization of the seed of essence of God. So it's important to understand. However, in this specific discourse, there is an unbelievable twist in the teachings that if the encompassing is meant to empower us to have internalization, then the encompassing light relationship has to be driven focused and programmed to help us experience internalization let's talk about this practical for a moment okay we're getting all spiritual i can hear the music in the background let's get very practical okay there are relationships that you have with people you know what let me get really practical are there people in your life you only text you never talk to them do you know why because you don't want to have an internalized relationship it's kind of beautiful that I don't see you, you don't see me, we don't really get to talk. We just occasionally text. That's a form of relationship, and we do that purposefully. Now, when you have that type of relationship, it never breeds into a decent, healthy, internalized relationship. Because all you have been honing, all you have been developing, all you have been nurturing is a very encompassing relationship and that's why so many long-distance relationships come to a screeching halt when they're no more long distance because I love you from far you've gotten way too close so when we talk about the encompassing versus the internalizing they're two different systems and you have it all the time there are people who <laughs> I actually got this beautiful picture of a funeral <laughs> and where they had like hundreds of seats set up and you see in the background this one person telling the other person well I looked at his Facebook he had hundreds of friends yeah but none of them showed up to the funeral two people there they're, they're total different relationships and thus Kabbalistically did ever wants to understand how can the encompassing Aresin empower us to an internalized marriage the encompassing Aresin should only breed and nurture an encompassing power of relationship. And thus we're going to understand the beauty of the series. That the power of this encompassing betrothal with Hashem is that it is programmed, driven, and focused on helping us learn how to eternalize. Now that's a different bowl of wax. That's where we start a courtship because if I came landing on you, 
on our first date, I told you I want to marry you, I'd be arrested. So we got to first start developing things. But the whole purpose that I'm, I'm developing things is, I want to let you know up front, don't waste my time. I'm not looking for indefinite dating. I'm actually looking to develop an internalized relationship. That means all that courtship, which is actually encompassing, is driven towards developing what it takes to be able to have an internalized relationship. Thus understand that the locked garden is an encompassing relationship which is driven for the sole purpose of creating the locked spring, which is a marriage. Okay? We're done with the introductions. Let's now move on. interesting right because I told you that the encompassing light has a double play here on one hand it's elusive on the other hand it's driven to internalize so if at this point of the lecture you guys are confused yet ready to understand <laughs> we've accomplished <laughs> the first part of this copa okay so let's go further I told you there's a series and the Mimer, the discourse before this discourse of the fourth Lubavitch Rebbe, he defines the opening part of the verse, which is the Aresin, the betrothal, wow, betrothal, okay. The betrothal process is what? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> okay, Einstein failed math, so I'm okay. <laughs> but let's go further. This concept of the Aresin, right? How does it manifest itself? We're talking obviously about the marriage between God and us. That's what we're looking to understand here. So it actually manifests itself in a very interesting concept. Previously, in the discourse, right before discourse, this discourse, the fourth about Trevor of Shmuel, the Rebbe Marash says that you should know that the first step in the relationship is the locked garden. What does the locked garden mean? It plain and simply means that we control our behaviors our thought, speech, and action is closed off to the 365 prohibitions, which equals you shall turn away from evil. And that's the first step. When the groom tells the bride with the ring, you are hereby consecrated unto me. Remember, there's no consummation between them. But what did happen was that there can be no more consummation between her and everyone else. Thus, you understand that the 365 prohibitions is not yet us becoming one with God, but it's God telling us you cannot no more hang out with anyone else. Those are all off limits. Okay? That is the first layer of which the fourth Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rebbe Marash, spoke about in the discourse before this discourse. And over there, he includes everything from the infrastructure. The intellect, the emotions, the thought, the speech, and the action have to be holy unto God. How do they become holy unto God? Presently, all we could do is make sure they don't go anywhere else. In this discourse, he takes it to the next level. In this discourse, he's focused on the metaphor. King Solomon used the word gan na'ul. What does gan mean? A garden. What is a garden? In the world of Kabbalah, we're very focused that the difference between a garden and a field is that a field produces food, sustenance, 
a garden is all about pleasure. And thus, the Rebbe Marash now introduces the next layer and says, not only is this arisen have to be that we close off our behaviors to anything foreign, don't let anyone foreign into the garden, but we need to go to the next step. Even our faculty of pleasure, which is the deepest essence of the human being, driven by pleasure, even that can be ganna'ul. It can be a locked garden. We can actually even close off our pleasure faculty from the lower levels of pleasure, selfish, indulgence and ego-driven, egocentric pleasures, to be able to say, if I want to belong to him, I got to not numb myself and course up this faculty of pleasures. It's very simple. One of my mentors once said, if you enjoy medium rear steak, don't expect to enjoy the Hasidic discourse. You got to develop your taste buds. So if we're going to say that I want to lock my garden, and what does it mean to lock my garden? It means I want no one else in there. But who do I want in there? The one and only that I want there. So thus we understand that they both have to work. I need to lock my garden to everyone else. I've got to kind of upgrade my sense of pleasure. And then that empowers me to go to the next stage and open up to receive pleasure from God himself. My pleasure in my life should be my relationship with God. Now that's a whole different level. We're not talking about just the lower levels of behavior. The Rebbe Marash is upping the process here. He's saying that we are actually capable of being empowered by God and thus preparing ourselves to have not only a relationship of obedience with God, not only a relationship in which I can understand at some level, I can actually have a relationship in which there's pleasure from God. That is my pleasure. I want to sit in my garden with God and just have time with Him alone. So that's where discourse comes from, built upon the last discourse. Okay, now let's go to very simple two commentaries. So in the book, all the books of, of the prophets and the scriptures have commentaries, famous commentaries. There's the Targum, there's the Matudas Dabba, which we're going to talk about, the Matudas Siyan, which is the same person, there's the Radak. I want to bring to you two commentaries. They are talking about this verse, and they want to know which garden is King Solomon talking about. Comes along the Targum and says that King Solomon is giving us a metaphor. Just as the Garden of Eden is closed off to everyone but the righteous. Remember that verse we say in Rosh Hashanah? Who will go up to the mountain of God? That's talking about the Garden of Eden. Only those who have clean hands, right? So just as the Garden of Eden is closed off, open only to the righteous, so the Jewish people, the bride of God, are closed off only to the righteous husband, capital H, God. So he gets really, wow, Garden of Eden. The Metsudas David, the Sian, he says a different approach. He says we're talking about a regular garden. Just like someone who owns a garden locks his garden so that no one can go in besides the owner, so too the Jewish people, we lock our garden 
so that no one can come in. No foreigners can drezach, as we say in Yiddish. They can't just uh, sit in there and then, you know, and then and, and infiltrate our pleasure system. It's we lock it up for the master of our garden, which is God. So I know living in the times of 2015 where everything has to be centralized, everything has to be, you know, all about sensational. Oh, the Garden of Eden. The Rebbe has a simple question. The sensational interpretation of the Garden of Eden doesn't make sense as much as the other one. What are we talking about the locked garden? We're talking about that the human being locks his human experience of pleasure so that he can be open to God's experience of pleasure. So why is the Targum saying, no, we're talking about the Garden of Eden is locked. What does that have to do with what it's teaching us? The Garden of Eden is about God's pleasure. It's about God giving us the gift of pleasure. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the loyalty of the bride to the groom. That she locks up her human experience of pleasure. So that it'll be open only to God. And thus he asked that question. The Rebbe asked that question that seemingly we should not look at it as a sensational Garden of Eden metaphor. We should look at it as a simple garden. Okay? To understand this, we're going to go ahead and introduce another verse of our prayers. This verse of our prayers that we say every Shabbat is actually a direct parallel to this beautiful verse of the locked garden and the locked spring. We say every day in our prayers, every day, I'm sorry, every Shabbat, what do we say? What does that mean? Sanctify us with your commandments and give us our portion in the Torah. Now, that's the verse. I want to read it to you with a couple of parentheses that I stuck in there. Okay? Sanctify, betrothed, us with your commandments. Give us marriage, our portion in your Torah, your seed of essence. Now we're getting it. The ring which God places on our finger is his holy commandments. When God says you are sanctified, consecrated, Unto me with this ring in accordance with the law of Moses and Israel. What he's doing is he's giving us mitzvot. He's giving us the encompassing power so that we may prepare ourselves for Mount Sinai. Which is the marriage when he gives us his seed of essence. What is God's seed of essence? His holy Torah. Now let's understand this. Let's, let's try to be practical in this mystical playground. When we talk about mitzvot, what is mitzvot all about? Because you and I both know that we don't understand why we have to do the things we have to do and why we're not allowed to do the things that we're not allowed to do. Even the great King Solomon said about one commandment, as much as I wisen myself up, she still remains distant from me. Let's say it again. King Solomon said, I can't wrap my head around this. This is encompassing. It is elusive. So when something is elusive, what is it to us? Obedience. I do it not because I understand it. I do it because I need to have obedience. That's what the commandments are all about. God commands us and we listen. So the ring that he places on our finger, which empowers us to later get married to him, is the mitzvot. The marriage the consummation in which God plants within us the seed of his essence, that's when he gave us the Torah. 
And when we learn the Torah, we internalize it. We understand the holy words of the Torah. And thus we give birth to the child, which is the world in the state of Mashiach. So what we're understanding here is that this verse of sanctify us in your commandments, right? When we say sanctify us with your commandments, we're talking about the locked garden. We're talking about process A of the chuppah. No consummation, but I'm consecrated unto him alone. I cannot do what I'm not allowed to do no more. Comes along part B then, which is the outcome of part A, which is the locked spring, which is and give us our portion in your holy Torah. Okay? Let's talk about this. If you look at this simple timeline, what did God do for us in Egypt? You remember? The first commandment we ever got from God was not at Mount Sinai. It was five days before. Actually, it was more. It was Rosh Chodesh. It was about five days before. It was about what we should do in five days before. But actually, what happens? What happens is God tells Moses, this is the new month, the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh. The mitzvah of the month cycle, that it doesn't start with Rosh Hashanah, it starts with the month of Nisan. And then he tells us the commandment of preparing ourselves for the, pa the Pesach, the carbon Pesach, to have the matzah, the maror, be ready, dressed up in your shoes with your walking stick and your belt, and you have to be ready for the Passover sacrifice. You're going to do the Passover sacrifice, put the blood on the door, and then be ready to shoot out of there. Those are mitzvot. By the way, if you're familiar, after we left Egypt, before we got to Mount Sinai, there was a pit stop in a place called Marah. And God gave us commandments in Marah, the laws of Shabbat, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments. So God gives us more commandments. Why is he giving us commandments before we get to Mount Sinai? Isn't Mount Sinai all about the commandments? The answer is no. God gives us the commandments, which is just like process A, not just like, it is process A. God is creating the locked garden because you cannot become his locked spring before you become his locked garden. Now let's talk about it on a more practical level. Why so? Why? Why does he have to give us mitzvahs before he gives us the Torah? And most people look at the Torah as what? As the constitution of 613 mitzvot. So you're giving us the mitzvahs in order to give us the constitution of the mitzvot? It's not so. But what happens here is, let's, let's look at it practical. How can the finite, physical, coarse human being be able to internalize the seed of essence of God? How can the human mind truly appreciate the divinity of Torah? Thus you understand that the process of becoming a locked garden, separating ourselves from foreign, forbidden stuff, what is actually doing, believe it or not, mitzvahs clean up your inner faculties. They broaden your inner faculties. And they prepare you to be able to internalize divinity. Now that is the definition of a courtship, not for the sake of dating, but for the sake of getting married. Believe it or not, when you put on tefillin on your hand and on your head, you're actually going through not just an encompassing obedient experience, but your mind and your heart, your hand down to your actions are actually being cleansed to be able to open up 
to receive a whole new dimension of divinity. So when we talk about doing mitzvot, it's not like just do mitzvot. Believe it or not, doing mitzvot is actually the empowerment to the ultimate unity where I internalize the wisdom, the will, and the pleasure of God. Now let's go back to the Targum. Who gives who the ring? Who gives who the ring? The Targum is the name of the commentary I'm about to quote to you that I quoted before. Who gives who the ring? The husband gives the, right? The groom gives the bride. According to Kabbalah, it's because the groom has to be able to empower the bride to get married to him. Now we understand if the groom is the omnipotent God and the bride is the physical finite you and me, I understand that there's no way I'm getting married to God on my own two feet. God has to empower me. Especially when we're talking about not just me dedicating and submitting my behaviors to God, we're talking about me being able to give up my human experience of pleasures and open up for divine experience of pleasure. That can only happen if God gives me the ring. What did the Targum say? The Targum said we're talking about the Garden of Eden. What's the Garden of Eden? It's God's gift of divine pleasure to the human being. Thus we understand that the process of doing mitzvot is not just boot camp where we have to break the soldier's ego. That's what boot camp is all about. I told you the story with my uncle, right? My uncle, should live and be well. He went to the army, and of course, being the uh, Yiddish cup, who's always got to figure out a smarter way how to do things, he receives his first assignment, which is very simple. Soldier, I want you to pile these things up over here. I want you to pile them over here, and this is how I want you to do it. And sure enough, his commander comes back and sees that he's doing it a different way. And he asks my uncle, why are you doing it that way? I told you to do it this way. And my uncle didn't know no better, being the smart Alex that he always is, God bless him. He says, well, I thought that this is even easier. Immediately, the commander shot at him. It's not your job to think. I'll be doing that for you. That's the process of boot camp. You can't run an army when you have every soldier thinking what's the best way. It's based on obedience. The mitzvah is not by us telling God, I think you should kind of change this. Or I came up with a better way. Sunday would work a lot better than Shabbat, God. Trust me on this. That's not the way it works. It's about obedience. However, now we're understanding that there's something far more beautiful. It's not just about the obedience. It's about God opening me up to be able to experience divine pleasure. To be able to truly internalize God's wisdom, God's will, God's pleasure. And thus the Targum says, no, we're not talking about your garden. We're talking about God's garden. God gave you the amazing gift of divine pleasure. Now, you got to keep that locked. I'm going to tell you parenthetically a story which is not in my notes, but let's go for it. There was a person in the times of the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, Tzemach Tzedek. And this person, he didn't have kids. Now, he was not from Hasidic background, but his wife came from a Hasidic family. And of course, they were going to doctors here and there, trying to have children, and it wasn't working. So she started nudging him, coming from her Hasidic background, why don't you go to the Rebbe to get a bracha? 
go to the Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, go to him and get a blessing. His blessings were him being from the other side, shall we say, not the Hasidic influence. What are you kidding me? I'm going to travel. It's going to take a week and a half. You know how much learning I can do then? I'm not going to no Rebbe. We went to doctors. She's nudging him and nudging him, and he's being stubborn. No. Sure enough, the Tzemach Tzedek, if you know his history, he did a lot of traveling on behalf of the Jewish people. Just fighting for their rights and protection, and he dealt with the soldiers that were kidnapped by the Tsar. He dealt a lot with that. So sure enough, once, once he happened to be literally in the little shtetl next door to where they lived. Now she upped the nudging the way only a Jewish woman knows how. And she tells him, listen, he's right here. The Rebbe is here. Don't give me no excuses. He finally gave in. He went to the Tzemach Tzedek. He asked for a blessing. And when he asked for that blessing, the Tzemach Tzedek gave it to him. He gave him a blessing. You're going to have a child. Okay, he comes home. Nine months go by. 18 months go by. No pregnancy, no child. So being of the non-Hasidic influence, he started making a whole to-do about this. <laughs> you guys with your stories, don't tell me. I had a blessing. He told me I would have a child, your Rebbe, and I don't have a child. No. Comes to the high holidays, and the high holidays, Hasidim travel to the Rebbe. They want to be Rosh Hashanah with the Rebbe. They want to be Yom Kippur with the Rebbe, Simchas Torah with the Rebbe. So Hasidim from that neighborhood traveled. One of the when he had a private audience known as the Yechidus, he had a private audience with the Rebbe. And in that audience, he mentioned to the Rebbe, Rebbe, I'm asking of the Rebbe that even though one needs to be worthy and do his part of a blessing, right? Blessing is only like rain. If you don't plow your field and plant the seeds, there's not going to be no, no growth. So even though one needs to be worthy of it, but I'm asking the Rebbe, please, may the Rebbe's blessing to this man manifest itself because he's making a huge chilul Hashem, making fun of believing in tzaddikim and, and rebbes and everything. The Rebbe heard this. The Rebbe said, got very quiet. He put his head down on his hand, it says in the story. He went into a meditative state, and then he looked up and he said to his chassid, what is it my fault that he gave away my blessing to a non-Jewish woman? And all of a sudden, the chassid turned white. He backed out. When he got back to the city, he told this guy, Yingala, come, we have to have a little conversation. And he told him what the Rebbe said. The guy admitted to him on the spot, it is true. He packed his bags. He went to the Tzemach Tzedek. He asked for a tikkun, how to do teshuvah. And his entire life changed. Why am I telling you this story? According to the Targum, God gives us in the engagement state, in the Arison state, in the betrayal state. God gives us the ring. And what is that ring? <laughs> the ring of the Lord. So what is that ring? The ring of the Lord is, we just learned, a locked garden. What is the locked garden? It is the Garden of Eden. What is the Garden of Eden? God has given us the ultimate experience a human being could ever have. Pleasure, but the highest standards of pleasure. Pleasure of divinity. Now let's go back to the story. The Tzemach Tzedek leaned on his head, on his hand, and got meditative and then said, and what's it my fault that he gave away this blessing to a non-Jewish woman? So understand what's going on here. This discourse is very serious. 
Now, before I get to the practical closing of this, I want to just share with you what happens here. I want to just go over the series. So in last series, he sp in the last mimer of the series, he spoke about only being able to lock the garden on our behaviors, our intellect, and our emotions. On this, the next mimer in the series, not this one, but the one after it, he talks about the locked spring. How to internalize the seed of essence of God is through Torah study. In this mimer, he did two things. Number one, he upped the experience of the betrothed. He spoke about not only can you give over your thought, speech, and action, intellect, and feelings. You can actually give over that power of pleasure. We can actually leave go of the human form of self-indulgence and open up to a selfless, beautiful divinity. We can actually have pleasure with God. And the second thing he tells us is that mitzvot is not only about obedience. Mitzvot is opening yourself up, cleansing yourself from the lower dimension of pleasure, opening yourself up to the more divine level of pleasure. Now let's do in closing. In closing, how many times have I heard from others and experienced from myself the whining about all the things we have to do and the things we're not allowed to do? How many times have I whined when I walked into Whole Foods and I'm trying to get a bar because the doctors are telling me that I have to change my diet and I find out that the only bars that there is there is the ones that even if they're kosher, they're not called Yisrael and I can't have them. And the one that I am allowed to have, the nutrients over there are so off. And I'm whining. Really, Hashem? Really? How many times do I whine? God, it's just unbearable. I can't do this, this, and this. I have to do this, this, and this. So basically, you're making me suppress who I am. And what would I do with that whining? So at some times, I would tell myself, hey, mitzvot is about obedience. That's what it's about. What's about when my rebellious side is way too loud to hear the word obedience? So then I try to take the other avenue. Okay, let me at least try to learn. Let me try to understand why I have to. And guess what? It doesn't always happen. Sometimes I just don't get it. Sometimes in the little quiet places of my, my little office, I whisper to myself, God's wrong, but you know what? He's the boss. Now look at what the Rebbe Marash tells us. Your experience of doing mitzvot does not have to be solely about the suppression of obedience. Rather appreciate that what God is doing for us is a very deep internal detox of the only egocentric human pleasure we know of. And with that, with that ring of the Lord, with that ring on our finger, we're able to open ourselves up to a far greater pleasure. To the very amazing pleasure of divinity for there is no greater pleasure than to truly enjoy a quiet moment in your locked garden with God thank you people